you will not be uh, caught. If you're here in person, we got Ragala. Uh, if you're not here in person, I'll have trouble passing it to the screen. Um, let me move this drop closer so that you get a better view. Um, now, for the joke, how do you get a philosophy student out of your house? How do you get a philosophy student out of your house? A student of philosophy, how do you get him out of your house? I, I get it. <laughs> tell, tell him to drop off the pizza and leave. Okay. Okay. <laughs> well, philosophy is not known for its great uh, money-making abilities. Um, I've met many of people who are turned off by philosophy itself. You know, it's just like the existential question, you know, questioning all these important philosophical questions. Like, are we here? Are we not here? You know, is the zebra white with black stripes, black with white stripes? So tonight we're going to discuss Jewish philosophy and Jewish ethics. And obviously our question on philosophy is going to be, why is it important? And actually, similarly, we're going to have the same question for Jewish ethics. Why is it important? Why is it necessary? If you have a student book, by the way, we are on page, um, page. That's a good question. We're going to start with the student book on page uh, 185. 185. Yep. Yep. Atalas? You need Atalas? A jacket. A jacket. Oh, okay. It's, it's a, little, a little chilly in here. Um, page 186, so, I think. Page 186. Okay. On the inside. Um, Jewish philosophy and Jewish the a Jewish um, ethics would seem very separate forms of study, but as we will learn, both of them at first glance are not really part of Judaism. However, and the second thing is both of them in some ways work together. So that's kind of going to be an interesting thing that we're going to show in this class. So tonight's class, we're going to first show the evolution of Jewish philosophy, also known in the Hebrew as Chakira. We're going to talk about the evolution of Jewish ethics, also known as Musar. And then finally, we're going to get to um, Jewish. And then finally, at the end of the class, we're going to study it and we're going to show how they can both work together. Um, it's really a beautiful class. Uh, so if you're not much of a history buff, you might get bored by the beginning, but the, the, the second half is going to be really, really beautiful. But I hope you enjoy as well the first part as well. So let us begin. Uh, Judaism is primarily, uh, you know, let me share the screen. Okay. A page? Well, till I read a text. Uh, there's no page, right? Oh, okay. <laughs> Let's share the screen. What? Yeah. Uh, one, uh, yeah. 186. Okay. 186. Yep. So Judaism is, oh, I got you the wrong one here. Okay. Well, so goes. Um, that's okay. So I'm going to stop sharing that because that one's not necessary. There's always something, but don't worry. I've got other presentations over here. Um, let's go with this one. Let me move back. Huh? It's always something. You know, I need, I need like five screens over here. All right. Hopefully that's what you're seeing. Let me just admit a couple more people into the class. All right, so lesson five. So you have, if you're interested in the history, you can actually see this graph and it's inside your book on page 
um, page 192, which by the way, if you don't have a book, let me know. I have a bunch of books here. Page 192, that shows the evolution of Jewish philosophy. I know that's probably not very clear on the screen, but again, if you have page 192, you can see the evolution of Jewish ethics and Jewish philosophy. So the interesting thing with Jewish ethics and Jewish philosophy is if you look in the original texts, um, it's not there so much. And it's not there because, simply put, um, Judaism is about doing the right thing, the Torah. Torah is about uh, what, what are the actions we have to take, right? Throughout the last couple of weeks, we've discussed the evolution almost exclusively of Jewish law. We started off with the oral and the written. Then we went to the Midrash, but we focused a lot on the Midrash as it pertains to Jewish law. Then we got to the, we got to the Mishnah, the Talmud, Jewish law. All that was an evolution of Jewish law. What is the evolution of Jewish ethics and uh, philosophy? So the answer is, of course, the Torah itself is not limited just to the 613 thou shalt and thou shalt nots. There's a bunch of other items that are in there. So we're going to take a look at text number uh, one. This is from Maimonides. You may notice we quote Maimonides a lot. If you've been coming to our course, by this point, you should know why. Because Maimonides was the first one to really codify Jewish teachings in an organized manner. So he's always going to be really a great source uh, for any Jewish laws. Also, as we mentioned, Maimonides is the first one to codify all Jewish law. Many of the codifiers that came after him um, did not codify all of Jewish law. They codified just the areas that we practice today. So Maimonides is uh, really a great resource for a lot of things if you ever want to look it up. And uh, what did I say? We're page 185. The good thing, by the way, I have this week is I have the, uh, I have the uh, PDF version, so I can show this to you on the screen. Okay. Um, so let's take a look. Maimonides says, he says like this, uh, Maimonides has an entire section on uh, laws of character. Okay, and let's just read a little text of what he writes. He writes, do not think that teshuva repentance is only for the sinful actions. A person should also examine their negative character traits, anger, hatred, envy, frivolity, the pursuit of money and honor, gluttony, and do teshuva for them as well. In other words, we do not just do teshuva for our bad actions, but we do teshuva for our bad ethics and morals, character. Uh, if you know, one of the most famous Jewish words is called mensch. We want people to be a mensch. It's very important. Why a mensch? Because a mensch means that they are good and upstanding moral character. Judaism is not just about the 600 commandments, but also about being a mensch. We also have, um, you may have heard it, midos, right? You have to have good midos, good character. You may not have heard it, but young children, we tell them all the time, that's a good, that's a good mida, that's not a good mida, that's a good character, that's not a good character. We try and raise our children uh, to have good characters. And Maimonides... Uh, has an entire section called Hilchot Deot, the laws of character. Um, and so it's not um, really only just about Jewish law, right? In other words, if you look at the Torah, the Torah mostly talks about following God's commandments. That's not related to your character, right? In other words, you can read the entire Torah. A lot of it is about following God's commandments. But there are hints in the Torah about having a good character, okay? Similarly, um, 
the prophets, a lot of the prophets come and say, you know, don't serve idolatry. Don't, um, you know, don't, uh, you know, work the land in the seventh year. They come to tell us off for all the things we're doing wrong. But throughout the prophets, you'll also see little hints at character. Like they'll talk about what does God really want? Does he really want your sacrifice or does he want your heart? There are lines like that. Of course, God wants the sacrifice. God wants the action. But he also wants us to become better people. And throughout the Torah, you will find areas where that expresses itself. And so we're going to discover some of those tonight. Uh, the other part of Jewish thought. Oh, sorry. So let me just say one more thing. So in the evolution of Jewish ethics, you have in the Talmud and the Mishnah, there's very little ethics. There are some. So it primarily does not deal with ethics, but there are ethical lines and ethical statements in there. The most famous section that deals with ethics in the entire uh, Mishnah is called Pirkei Avot, Ethics of Our Fathers. In fact, if you want to take a look, they have at the end of the book over here, um, from page uh, 226, they have different sayings at the back of the book from Ethics of Our Fathers. We're not going to read all of them, but just to read you a, cup, a couple of them, just so you get an idea. Um, against your will, you were formed. Against your will, you were born. Against your will, you will live. Against your will, you will die. Those are ethics. You know, just telling you, like, you didn't ask to be born. You didn't ask to live. You don't ask to die. You know, you're here for a, uh, a mission or purpose or another one. A bashful person cannot learn. A short-tempered person cannot teach. These are ethics. They're not saying you should put on the phone. You should light Shabbos candle. You should, you know, light Hanukkah candles. It's telling you, if you want to study, don't be too bashful. You have to, you know, get over your embarrassment. That's what ethics are. Books completely dedicated to Jewish ethics um, were very rare in the beginning. That's really what I'm trying to get to. In other words, Talmud, they throw in ethics in there. Mishnah, there's only one tractate, one tractate dedicated to ethics. So ethics was always part of Judaism, but an actual study of ethics um, only started much later. In other words, people writing dedicated books towards ethics. Dedicated books towards Jewish law were always around. Dedicated books of ethics really started later. You have also in the Tanakh, to an extent, you have uh, King Solomon wrote some, you know, a dedicated book of ethics, if you want to call it Ecclesiastes. But again, they're far and few in between. That's all I'm pointing out. Ethics uh, was far and few in between, uh, but it was always part of the teaching. Later on, uh, the sages spent more time and more time discussing Jewish ethics. And if you look in the, uh, in the uh, page 192, you can see the different books of ethics that came about. Most people, when they think of ethics, though, uh, they think of the word Musar. Okay, Jewish ethics, they think of the word Musar. Here's a book I have over here called by Rabbi Yisrael Salant, the founder of the Musar movement. Uh, that was in the 19th century. People generally equate Jewish, Jewish ethics with the Musar movement. However, you have to understand that the Musar movement is a branch of Jewish ethics, but we should not equate Jewish ethics with the Musar movement. I'm going to say that one more time. The Musar movement is a branch of Jewish ethics. In other words, it's a, it's a specific type of teaching of Jewish ethics. It's a specific way of teaching you how to live the proper ethics. And we can have a whole class on the Musar movement itself but it started in the 19th century. Uh, uh, that's a branch of Jewish ethics, but it, it's not defined by that. So if someone tells you they want to study Jewish ethics or even Jewish Musar, Musar is not necessarily, does it mean 
the, the Musar movement that started in the 19th century. If you want to know more about the Musar movement, we'll probably talk a little bit about it next week when we discuss Hasidic philosophy, and we'll contrast that a little bit with the Musar movement. So again, there's ethics, can also be interchanged with the word Musar. There is a Musar movement that started in the 19th century, but ethics have always been around. Actual books dedicated to Musar itself only started, I, I see here in the, you know, in the year, I think 1000, there was a book that came around dedicated to uh, the book of ethics. Maimonides spent some time on ethics. Um, um, so there are books dedicated towards ethics, but not as much. It's very interesting because today, uh, a lot of people equate um, Judaism with uh, with the ethics and morals, right? Why do I want to teach my kid Judaism so that they'll be a good person, so that they'll get good ethics? And it is true, uh, but we always have to understand that we cannot pull apart Jewish ethics from Jewish practice. Uh, really, we, we appreciate and, and get our ethics from Jewish practice and Jewish beliefs, as we're going to discuss in the class. We're going to show you in the class how a certain ethic, as we're going to discuss at the end of the class, anger, the Jewish way of dealing with anger is very much based on our Jewish beliefs. So when we try to separate the two, that's when we have trouble. In other words, um, you know, you can tell people, well, you know, Jews are very nice, right? Well, based on what? When you connect the ethics with tradition, that's when they're more meaningful, more powerful. And that's why I think in the beginning, you don't find a lot of books dedicated just towards ethics. Now, as generations went on and people may have thought, or, or you know, as, you know, human beings have issues, and and uh, as it, issues became more pronounced, people needed to dedicate books towards ethics. Um, but I think in the beginning, it wasn't as necessary to separate them as people understood the ethics along with the uh, teachings that were there. Um, clear as mud so far? Jewish ethics. All right, to summarize what I said, Jew the study of Jewish ethics is not the study of Jewish law. In the beginning of the giving of the Torah, there was very little uh, time or space, I should say, dedicated towards discussing Jewish ethics, though it was always around. Only the, the later generations were there dedicated books towards ethics. We have a couple from the beginning, Ethics of Our Fathers, Ecclesiastes, but for the most part, an actual study of ethics started much later. And today, if you go to yeshiva, they might have a time dedicated towards studying ethics. And what I'm saying is if you study the Talmud, ethics will be in there, but it's not necessarily a section unto itself uh, as law is. Okay. So now that you have a little bit of understanding of Jewish ethics, not a lot, but a little. Um, and I'm going to show you at the end of the class again, when we do the case study, how ethics come out of our teachings. We'll discuss uh, philosophy for a moment. They tell the story of the guy, I've said the story many times, but it's a great story. They tell the story of the guy who's going on a date. And his rabbi tells him, you're going on a date. You got to have talk with a girl. You know, he's never talked with a girl before. He's a yeshiva guy. So he says, what should I talk about? So he says, I'll talk about the three Fs. Uh, fam uh, uh, food, family, and philosophy. Obviously, philosophy is not an F. But anyways, he's a yeshiva guy. He does not a spell. So he goes on the date. He starts off sitting there with a girl. He says, uh, food, food, food. Okay, do you like potato kugel? He says, no. All right, not too much to talk about. Uh, family, family. Do you have a brother? He says, no. This is going nowhere. Philosophy. Okay, philosophy, philosophy. All right, if you had a brother, would he like potato kugel? <laughs> so 
it's an old joke. Um, so we tend to think of philosophy as mind-bending um, ideas. But the truth is that philosophy has always been a part of Judaism. It developed into its own study later on, as we'll discuss soon. But philosophy has always been an important part of Judaism. Why? First of all, we have many mitzvahs, many commandments that deal with feelings and character traits. Okay, there are many commandments that deal with feelings and character traits. Like what? Can anybody think of a uh, mitzvah that deals with a feeling or a character trait? We discussed one a couple of weeks ago. Helping your enemy's donkey, right? That, that's, that's dealing with a character trait. We said it says specifically, go help your enemy's donkey, right? Um, there are also a number of commandments that require um, rational understanding, even philosophical understanding. For example, um, the commandment, you shall know God. What does it mean to know God? Well, obviously, you got to study some philosophy. Let's take a look over here at some text. Let's share the screen, share screen two. It's text number two. Text number two says like this. <clears throat> the Torah says, know today and bring unto your heart that God is the God that is to say, know God with an in-depth knowledge and with logical proofs, in addition to the tradition received from our ancestors. Okay? So notice we have to know God in addition to our faith. Know the God of your fathers, meaning to say, in addition to the faith established in your heart by your fathers, by tradition handed down through the generations, you should also know on your own by means of your own understanding. So again, it's a very interesting thing. Know the God of your fathers, okay? So the God of our parents is the, is the tradition and the faith that's been passed down to us. Believe in God, trust in God. And so we're told you should know that God, that God that you believe in, you should know him. Now, how do we actually know God, right? Can you actually know God? Well, if you came to the JLI course, my God, you'd, you'd have a better answer. No, okay, I'm kidding. But, um, not holding a grudge, good example. Um, so as we discussed in that course, God does not like lazy faith. Lazy faith means you use faith for everything. And God says, no, I want you to understand me as much as you can. And beyond that, have faith. Beyond the place where you can understand, that's where faith comes in. Beyond what you know in your mind, that's where faith comes in. Why is it so important? Because the more we can understand, uh, the more it's going to connect with us. Faith is uh, faith. It's, it's not as internalized as when you understand something. When you understand something, it becomes a part of you and you truly feel it. Belief is powerful. It's the most powerful force that we have. But there's also a depth that comes when you understand something. There's a feeling, a connection that comes when you understand something. Uh, so we can always rely on faith, but why don't we use the faith for what it's necessary for and uh, use our uh, understanding for what we can. Now, I do want to caution over, I want to say something interesting. Um, philosophy can also lead us to um, a lot of wrong places, okay? Once you start the question, right? Well, how do you know you're gonna get to the answer? So actually, um, when Greek philosophy started getting popular and more in the Sephardic communities was a problem, 
this is just to give you a little bit of history. Um, for, for much of Ashkenazic Jewry, we were, we were really second-class citizens and we weren't integrated in society. We were stuck in the shtetl. We weren't really allowed to go to colleges, get involved in certain jobs. So the influence of the non-Jewish world was not very strong. In the Sephardic countries, the Muslim countries, despite them looking at us as, I forget what it's called, demo, de, 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 I forget the word, demahas, dem, dumas, dumas, they have a name. Second class citizens. Second class citizens. Despite us being Demi, 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 huh? Demi. Demi, yeah. Despite us being Demi. calling Demis, right? Uh, which is a second class citizen. Not we were, Demi. Huh? Not Demi, Demi. Demi, Demi, <laughs> not Demi, Demi, okay. Despite us being considered second class citizens, we were very much integrated into society. You can look throughout the stories. I mean, Maimonides was, of course, a doctor, but so many of the rabbis were doctors. How could they become doctors? Where did they learn? Um, all these things show that they were very much integrated in society. And so specifically in the Sephardic world, philosophy started to become a big problem. Many people were into philosophy. Even Aristotle philosophy came into the Arab world. The Arab world wrote a lot of philosophy books as well. They have a lot of philosophy. And it became a big problem. And so some rabbis, famously Maimonides, writing the, the book, to, The Guide to the Perplexed, uh, wrote books of Jewish philosophy. Yes. Why are you calling philosophy a problem? Because I'll tell you, some rabbis viewed it as a problem. Back in the day, when Maimonides wrote his book of philosophy, uh, some of the rabbis called him a heretic. They, they were very upset at writing books of philosophy. Some of the rabbis said, you know, you get into philosophy, you get into questions, you don't know if you're going to get to the answer. They said, better not to question, you know? And, you know, you're going to get too close to the secular world. And Maimonides and others said, no, if this is, you know, if people see this out there, we have to create an alternative. There's got to be a field of Jewish philosophy. So, again, although Jewish philosophy always being around, dedicated books of Jewish philosophy were really written during that era. During, again, Maimonides, you know, a thousand years ago, Maimonides 800, 900 years ago, a thousand years ago. That's when it started. And in the beginning, there were different schools of thought. And some were very much against Jewish philosophy, um, dedicated books of Jewish philosophy because they felt it was a danger. Uh, many other rabbis, though, held it was important and philosophy is good for us. Maimonides actually himself claims that Jewish philosophy was always around and through the exile, a lot of our philosophy was lost. Um, and finally, Maimonides said, how could philosophy be wrong? Philosophy is just intellect, just intellectual, just writing it in a book. But anyways, that's you know, you can go back and forth all about philosophy all day. If we had a really long class, um, I had prepared on those slides the, the different arguments of the different groups, whether philosophy was good or bad. But that's a little bit of the history of philosophy. Uh, there was a debate around it, but uh, ultimately, again, in that same era that you had books of ethics, you had books of philosophy, mostly born out of the different groups that were available during that time. Now, I want to uh, read this text of here, text number three, which tells us... Um, shows to us how important philosophy is in uh, uh, in our Jewish practice. Let's take a look. It is written, you shall love God your God, right? Deuteronomy says you shall love God your God. But love is a feeling in the heart. How can it be commanded? One who loves God loves but what should a person love if this love is not embedded in their heart god forbid right in other words if you love god you love god if you don't love god you don't love god how can you tell somebody to love god 
How can the Torah say in a manner of a command, you shall love as if a person has a choice in the matter, right? You can't command people to love. Can I tell you, you, you have to love chocolate. If you don't love chocolate, I can't command you that. Either you like it or you don't. So then he explains. The commandment is regarding the contemplation described in the preceding verse of Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, God is our God, God is one. The Hebrew word Shema here also means understand. That is why it says you shall love as an imperative, as the commandment is to contemplate and understand. So he's saying like this. He's saying some commandments in the Torah commanding our feelings. And the only way the key to the feelings is through the mind. And that's why philosophy in Judaism is important. Because the key to the feelings that Judaism asks of us are through the mind. And so to have feelings towards God, you have to think about God and contemplate about God. And uh, that's, that's, that's the study of Jewish philosophy. Um, we speak a lot about this in our Tanya class. And that's really what Tanya is all about, is all about getting into um, Jewish philosophy. And, and through that, we can come to an appreciation and to love God. But like I always say in the Tanya class, if you're walking around wondering why you're having trouble feeling feelings towards God, the question is, how much are you thinking about him? How much time are you spending thinking about God? A lot of people don't spend a lot of time thinking about God. Okay. Um, make sure there's no uh, feedback over here. Okay. Now, Daylight has a lesson video over here, which will, which will go through all the different books of the Mosar. I think it's a lot. It's a lot of information. It's literally reading what you can see on page 192. So I'm not going to do it. It's a little bit of history. So we're ready to delve deeply into the topic itself. So I want to recap what we've studied so far. And in fact, I should probably do that with the slides. So let me do that right now. Let me recap with the slides. And uh, in order to do that, I'm going to have to share my screen. Let's share screen number two. Let's recap what we've said. So to recap. At first glance, Torah seems to be focused primarily on our behavior and less on how we think and feel. The Torah, however, is a holistic guide to our life. Examples of non-action Torah precepts, love your fellow as yourself, avoid overindulgence in materialism, as the Torah says, you shall be holy, cultivate traits of joy and trust, right? We have to have trust in God. In the Rambam's Mishnah Torah, Maimonides' book, there is an entire section called Hilchos Deus, the laws of character. Halacha is not limited to physical action. Uh, we talk, he talks also about character and examining negative character traits and utilizing the psychological self-development programs guided by Torah values. Uh, some mitzvot require rational understanding in order to fulfill them properly. And this leads us into philosophical teachings, help us to transform our emotions and character. And the words of Chakir, which is Jewish philosophy, present the philosophical parts of the Torah in a systematic way. And those are some of the texts showing you. We're not going to play the lesson video. All right. Now we're going to move on to the next step of the class. We're going to go into actual delving into text. As I said in the beginning of the class, there's, on the one hand, there's Jewish ethics. On the other hand, there's Jewish philosophy. And then at the end, well, sorry, there's... There's the, there's the final action of how you how you live your life. Um, so there's well we'll start off with philosophy in creation. We're going to go into trust with this which is ethics, and we're going to see how all that ties into how we deal with a certain character trait called anger. So we're going to explore these three lenses 
through Musar, Jewish ethics, and Chakira, Jewish philosophy. Okay, uh, one second. All right. Uh, okay. Um, so let us delve straight into this because this is going to be good stuff. Creation, trust, and God, anger. I don't know why they want to highlight those differently. Okay. So let's start with creation. This is the first words of the Torah. The Torah says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now remember, the Torah is a book of book of laws, right? Primarily. So Rashi, right away on this verse, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth and says, that's a really nice story. It's cool. God created the world. But uh, why do we need to start the Torah with that? You know, leave it out of the book. Leave it for the Medrash to tell us, right? A lot of details are left in the Medrash. Abraham's, the beginning of Abraham's life is left for the Medrash. Why do we need to know about creation? Start with the commandments. This is Rocky's question. Why begin the Torah with a verse about creation? The whole beginning of the Torah, really all the stories is, is part of Rashi's same question. So Rashi has um, his answer. Um, yet, we're not going to get into Rashi's answer. And you can see Rashi's answer in text number five, which is actually a very relevant answer. Rashi's answer is actually God wants to start with creation because a big part of the Torah is Israel. And God wants to set the stage that Israel belongs to the Jews. How so? Look in the Torah. The Torah says God created the world, and therefore he gets to decide who gets what land. It's not about conquest. God creates the world. He gets to decide who gets the land of Israel. And so you have a complaint. Complaint to God. He created the world. He gets to decide who gets what land. That's Rashi's answer. So Rashi's pragmatic. He gets practical. Um, however, there are the philosophers. They come up with a more philosophical answer. They say like this. They say understanding that God created the world is so important in how we practice our Judaism. Now, there's a lot of people today and back in time and uh, throughout the time of philosophy as well that believe that the world always existed. They believed that everything that we see was always here. Aristotle, for example, you have to understand Aristotle until 500 years ago, what he said was gold, right? If you would not believe what he said, it was like going against, dare I say, no, I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to get political here. Uh, it would be going against science. Um, it would be going against what we're supposed to believe, right? Going against Aristotle would be like going against Darwin. It'd be like going against Einstein, you know? Aristotle's belief, his belief of the world was that the world always existed. He believed in God, but God was kind of a part of nature. He was, he said, God moves the world and he doesn't move. He's like, you know, an intellectual person, intellectual being who, you know, arranges everything to move in this world. So he had a belief in God because obviously the world was too complex to believe there is no God. But yet at the same time, he believed that God in the world is one thing. It's always been here. It's always been here. God is a part of the world. The world is a part of God. And that was his belief. Now, the now, what's the problem with such a belief? You could say, all right, I believe God was always here. And then he gave Moses commandments and he wants us to do many different commandments. In other words, what would be the problem in uh, believing that the world always existed? How would that change our worldview? How would that change how we act? 
Okay, so so but what if he didn't create the world? In other words, doesn't make a difference whether God created it or didn't create it. God is the primary being of the universe, and he wants me to do certain things. What difference does it make if he created it or he didn't create it? Uh, someone wrote here in the chat. I'll have to listen. Okay, meeting. Okay. Um, any thoughts? There's only chance, no plan. There's no plan. Well, there could be a somewhat of a plan. Okay. He can move everything around, I guess. But he created everything for a specific purpose. He created everything for a specific purpose. That's yeah. Yep. He created everything for a specific purpose. Good. So if we look at the world as it was always here, even if there's an intelligent God that's kind of involved in it, but then we're very much stuck in nature. Uh, nature is the primary force. God and nature, almost an interchangeable thing. You know, you find people today, they pray to nature, right? There are these people that they pray to nature. It's kind of an Aristotle viewpoint of the world. Uh, but it's not just, you know, even people who aren't philosophical, people who walk around without thinking of God as the creator, thinking that there is a God, he's some being out there, some intellectual being. When you take God out from being the creator, you remove a lot of the purpose and a lot of the intention in what was going on. Um, if you believe the world was always here, you kind of believe, you know, was been here for many years and always be here and it's kind of flowing along its path, going along its way. Life will continue the way it's going and that's what you meant to know about no plan. Yeah. Then, then you can make up your own plan or your own authority or your own yeah, yeah. creator. There isn't a very deep plan. You know, it's just, you know, kind of bumping along the road. In fact, Aristotle actually believed God is so great. He actually doesn't even care about the world that much. You know, he's, as some people tell me, right, God, you know, why would God care about me? You know, he's too busy. He has other big things to take care of. You know, there's ICBMs and wars in Russia and Chinese spy balloons. What does he care about me and my life? You know, um, Someone else wrote here, also you remove God's attachment or vested interest in us. Very good. Um, yeah. If he creates us, then he has a very vested interest in us. But if he's just part of nature that was always here and we just kind of formed out of nature, uh, then he may not have a very vested interest in us, even though, even if he may be aware of us. Um, that's a good one. Yeah, we don't owe him anything. Well, well, yeah, we don't owe him that much. Yeah, that's for sure. Um so the entire point of Judaism is to tell us that uh, we believe that there's a purpose in everything and every moment and every second and every circumstance that we're in is purposeful. If there's a creator that's involved in creating this world with a very specific plan, there's a purpose, right? If you're an architect of a building, uh, every square inch is planned, okay? I know because we're working on that new building and you know, you're fretting over every little detail that's in there. You know, every... Every, you know, every square inch, you're worried about it. You're thinking about it. You want to maximize what you're trying to do. You have a plan. You want to build it in a certain way. When God created this world, um, God being the infinite being had a very specific detailed plan for this world. He wasn't just like, well, let's say, uh, you know, throw the earth today. See, you know, see, see, see how the people do with that. You know, um, one can believe in that if you believe the world was always around, you know, God's not that best, that interested. Um, the other thing, if there's a creator, then the creator is separate from the world. God is greater than the world, right? If God was always around with the world, God is not greater than the world. He's just the greatest thing in the world. 
if God created the world, then he's greater than the world and he can change the world. He can change things. He can perform miracles. Um, he can do whatever it is that he wants to do with it. So let's take a look here at text number eight. Take a look at text number eight. Um, this is again from Maimonides' Guide to the Perplex. And Maimonides, as I said earlier, he, he dealt a lot with, with Aristotle. He loved Aristotle, but um, he had, of course, didn't agree with everything that he said. So let's take a look here. And uh, you'll see how all this makes a big difference uh, soon. This is like this. God tells us in the Torah that all things were created from nothing, created by him from a prior state of non-existence. As it is written, in the beginning, God created. It also says, I am God who makes everything. This truth was corroborated for us with signs and miracles, and therefore we accepted it. I want to I wanna add on to that. In other words, not only do we know God exists by philosophy, right? The philosopher sitting in the room, does God exist? But we know God exists based on the fact that he gave a revelation towards the Jewish people. I then contemplated this truth asking, can this be verified by logic as it is verified by prophecy? I found that it is from a number of angles. And so he brought multiple, multiple proofs um, that God uh, created the world by choice. Uh, but I'm re I see that I'm reading the wrong text. This is from Rabbi Saad Yigon. Yeah, um, but anyways, so, but I'll skip over the text in a moment. So what he's saying is, is that you can prove God from a number of different angles, that God created the world, and we're going to skip that. But why is it important? As he continues, the belief, this is text number eight, the belief in a pre-existing world as viewed by Aristotle, which everything that is must be, nothing changes its nature and nothing acts contrary to its custom. This view contradicts the very basis of our faith, denies every miracle, and negates all that the Torah strives for or warns against. Know that with the belief of a created world, all miracles are possible, the Torah is possible, and all challenges to these truths are answered. For should you ask, why did God communicate his prophecy to this one and not the other? Why did he command these particular mitzvot and prohibitions? What is the divine intent of these instructions? Why did God not inspire these actions and the prohibitions in our nature if this is the behavior that he desired. The answer to all these questions is, so God desired, right? In other words, um, if God did it with a purpose, then the answer is that's what he wants. <laughs> so you can ask, why does God want you to eat, why does God want you to eat kosher? Well, the first answer is because God wants. You might be able to find some answers, but ultimately that's what he wants. What are you going to say? That's what he wants. And so is wisdom deemed in the same way that it was desired by God to create the world in this particular manner. But if we were to believe the world is the way it is because it could not be any other way, then all these questions would necessarily arise and they could only be answered with weak and unsatisfactory replies. It's interesting. Maimonides himself spends a lot of time explaining all the commandments as best as he can philosophically. But yet he starts off saying, first of all, if you believe in God, there's no questions because God created the world with purpose. He desired it. This is what he wants. And so whether you understand why he wants you to eat kosher, whether he doesn't, or you don't understand why he wants you to eat kosher, you know that he created you with the desire for you to eat kosher. Then Maimonides gives some explanations to help us feel closer to, let's say, the mitzvah of kosher. But ultimately, we do these things because that's what God wants. This is the ultimate and first thing we have to know. Uh, someone asked, if we don't believe God created the world, the whole Torah would be in question. Um, yes, many people look at the Torah as a historical document, a cultural document, a document of great uh, significance to the Jewish faith and people. Um, now, again, I'm, I'm not passing judgment on anybody that, that has that belief that the Torah is that. 
but here we're presenting you classical Jewish beliefs. And the classical Jewish belief is, of course, God created the world and he gave us a Torah. And this is a very important part of life. Now, should you ask and should you question, well, could it be that God really created the world? This is where philosophy might help you. I pointed to this book a couple of times. I really like it. God, Rationality and Mysticism. Uh, if you like philosophy, written by Professor Block, who was a, uh, a professor in philosophy in London, Ontario. God, Rationality and Mysticism. Um, this is if you want your mind twisted like a pretzel. I've read it. It's a great book, but it's also if you're ready for it. Um, it's just an example of Jewish philosophy, but Jewish philosophers have written many books to help us appreciate. Uh, personally, I'll tell you personally, in my life, um, I have found philosophy to be very good for me. I, I don't study it like nowadays, but back in the day, you know, when I was young, when I was young, I wouldn't say stupid, but back when I was young and, uh, you know, obviously I grew up in the faith, I grew up religious, but I wanted to connect with the beliefs and I had questions and I, I, I delved into a lot of philosophy and, and it helped me. Of course, I come to the realization philosophy can only get you so far and you need faith beyond that. But I would say philosophy is a big anchor. It helps me anchor a lot of the beliefs that I, that I have. Um, it kind of makes me feel that, yeah, I'm doing the right thing. You know, this is, uh, this is really where it's at. Um, but again, we have to have faith beyond our philosophy. Philosophy can only take you to a certain point. Um, is faith just a belief without an answer? Faith is a belief that cannot be proven. If you can prove it, then you don't need faith anymore, right? Um, a child believes that their parent will always take care of them. It's a faith. You know, trusting. Can't, child can't prove it, but uh, it's a faith they have. Ah, that's just an example that came to mind. Um, okay. So this is philosophy. Again, the sage, the, the philosophers, Jewish philosophers bring a lot of proofs. I can twist your minds with proofs. Uh, we had a class, a JLI class earlier, and some people wanted a philosophy class. Maybe we'll do it uh, one of these days. Uh, but it's all very fascinating, interesting proofs about, you know, that God created the world. By the way, science is coming to a lot of different things that match with uh, Jewish belief. I, I came across this study today. I was just searching. Um, science believes the earth was originally covered in water. Or there are certain studies that show that. Um, which is, of course, what the Torah says. Uh, science has come to the realization that all human beings came from a uh, first human being. Um, now, of course, they don't say it's Adam and Eve, but they're getting there, you know, so this, <laughs> they're, eventually they'll get there, you know, uh, time by time. Uh, so again, personally, if you are having trouble with faith, I think what you want to take out of philosophy is um, philosophy is a great topic for you to study. Um, I think it's great. Um, if you want specific areas, I can, I can send you there, but I think philosophy can be helpful for a lot of people. Uh, to connect with the ideas and teachings. So again, the Torah tells us God created the world. That's an important belief that we need to have. Philosophy might help you uh, understand and believe in that. Somebody wrote here, resentment of authority, lack of humility would reduce someone's acknowledgement of God being creator because the person really wishes you had that honor himself. Okay. Doesn't the book of Job prove philosophy can only get so far? Doesn't the book of Job prove philosophy only gets you so far? Um, Yeah. Yeah, philosophy can only get you so far. You can only explain so much. 
can only explain so much. Any other questions or comments about this first idea? The first idea we have is that God created the world with purpose. And therefore, everything in your life and everything around you is purposeful. And he's created you here with a mission. He's given you a lot of commandments. He's given you what he's asking you to do. And uh, this is an important philosophical axiom of our sages. In other words, we can't just open the Torah and say, this is what God tells us. We have to know God is telling us because he created the world and he has a purpose and a reason for us. They're not just nice ideas. Um, he actually has a purpose and a reason for creating us. And there's a goal that he wants from us. Okay, but let's get into uh, faith and trust. Or uh, we're going to use the word trust, bitachon. Um, so actually, let's uh, let's take a look over here on the screen, just so you get a uh, recap. You have the Aristotelian, I don't know how to pronounce that, Aristotelian view. His view on miracles is all miracles have a natural explanation. Our choices are all part of inborn nature. Future change is always an outgrowth of the present reality. Creationism believes that for miracles, God disregards his natural way of running the world. For freedom of choice, we are creating the image of God and therefore can make our own choices. And our prayers and actions can have the power to change the way things are. That is uh, the Jewish view. Okay, let's get into trust of God. What is bitachon, trust in God? Trust in God is very much connected with what we spoke about a moment ago. A moment ago was more philosophy. Is it important to know God created the world or not? We, we explained that the answer is yes. Um, trust is a very important thing. Today in uh, psychology, trust is a big buzzword, right? People who have a trouble with trust, it's very hard to go, to go around your life. You question everything. You get into your car. Can you trust the mechanic fixed it? You get into an airplane. Can you trust the pilot's going to fly well? Uh, you get into a building. Can you trust the builders? You know, put the trusses in right. If someone walks around with a lack of trust at all, uh, they're going to have a very difficult life. Uh, so most of us, if we're healthy, have a healthy dose of trust, right? And everything that's around us. Um, Judaism is no different. We have to trust that our life is has a divinely ordained purpose, that everything that happens to us is guided by our creator towards that purpose. So let's take a look at, um, in other words, if we have a lack of trust, who else are we trusting in? This should be an easy answer. Ourselves, Ourselves right? We have two choices in life. We can trust God. And if we're not trusting God, then we're trusting the world around us, which for a large part means us. So if you need money, if you don't have trust and faith in God, you're relying pretty much on yourself or begging from others. If you um, have a lack of um, health, if you trust in God, you're relying on God. And um, if you don't have trust in God, then you're relying on the doctors. Or maybe you don't trust in them either. So you're really not relying on anybody. Or maybe you're going to take your own diets. Right? Which, by the way, um, so if we trust in God, do, do we need to do anything? Do we need to, like, go to work? Do we need to go to the doctor? Do we need to? There's many religious people who seem to... God you know, told us to trust in his own 
with uh, his commandments to work six days. So therefore, work will be part of that. God told us to work the earth for six days. Okay. All right. So let's take a look. We'd have to trust that that's what we should be doing. Um, someone else wrote here. Let me just add this. Someone else wrote here. Um, also, you remove God's attachment. Of course, we are partners with Hashem in God's creation. So we're gonna we're gonna explain this a little bit more. Let me just somebody needs to get in, and I'm trying to help them get into the. This is where it's hard with the uh, doing Zoom and running the whole thing. Okay, all right. Let's take a look at some text over here. Screen number two. So the first axiom we have to know is that we have to trust in God. And so let's take a look. This is one of the most famous lines, and uh, this is a line from Deuteronomy, I believe. It's a line. It's a text number ten, Deuteronomy. It says, "Remember the Lord your God." as it is he who gives you the ability to make wealth. In other words, God's saying, when you get to the land of Israel and you're very successful, don't forget me. Why? Because it's me that helps make you wealthy. It's me that helps give you what you need. But it's, that's the most common thing, right? When do we forget God? When we have everything we need. It's always, right? People come to show, they need prayers, they need prayers. Once, once everything's okay, uh, they're all good. And it's the same thing with our kids, right? They call us, call us, call us when they need the money. And then when they don't when they don't need money, they stop calling us, right? We 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 are we're human beings, we act the same, right? Um, so God warns us in the Torah, He knows our nature. He says, I know when you're gonna be doing well, you're gonna forget me. He says, just please don't forget me. Um now, that being said, that we rely on God, the blessings come from God, right? God is the one that gives us all the blessings. So we ask the question. Uh, does that mean we have to stop working? Does that mean we have to stop going to doctors? So he says, no. It says in the Torah, God will bless you in all that you do. That means God's blessing comes when you work. God wants to bless us when you are doing something. Let's take a look at one more text over here. Effort and work. It says like this. Diligence and effort are useful and necessary in all human action. This applies even to events in which both divine decree and human choice play a part, like the grain that is produced by the work of the farmer and the rain. Certainly the works and the efforts of the farmer are necessary, are, ne are as necessary a condition for the growth of the grain as the rain, as without them, the grain would not grow, right? So if you want to say, well, God's going to bring the rain, so I'm relying on God, well, God will say, but uh, you uh, didn't plant. It's like the old famous joke. A guy prays to God every week to win the lottery, and God says, uh, you got to buy the tickets. Right? So he continues. For this reason, King Solomon praises diligence and says, the hands of the diligent make rich and condemns laziness in order to urge a person to make all the efforts in their power to obtain their objectives. But then he says an interesting line. The psalmist also states, if God does not guard a city, the watchman's diligence is in vain. So that means you need a watchman but if there's no blessing of God, it's in vain. This implies that when God does guard the city, the watchman does well to be vigilant. For divine help comes with the human vigilance and effort, but not without it. We should therefore exert our efforts in all things as though they were completely dependent on our choice. And God will do as he see fits. And that's the most important line at the end. God will do as he see fits. So even when we do the effort, and we have the trust in God, that means ultimately it's going to come from God, right? You can plant your field. You don't know if the rain is going to come. 
So bitachon means that we acknowledge that everything is in the hands of God. But bitachon also means that we understand that God desires our participation in the divine plan. And therefore, we are required to make an effort to do work to accomplish. And when we do our part, God does his part. So here you have an interesting triangle. You have faith. Um, you also have self-reliance. Now, self-reliance, uh, what is fatalism? What's the translate fatalism? Exactly. So what's interesting is that both faith and self-reliance can lead to fatalism, right? Both faith. If you live purely on faith, you say, well, nothing I can change. I trust in God. I'm sick. I'm going to leave it up to God. Or you don't trust in God. You believe there's no God. You believe on the human being. That can also lead to fatalism. Well, what can I do? You know, this nature, nature is horrible, right? There's nothing I can do. But that when but you got to put the two together. You got to put bitachon, faith, and self-reliance together. God says, I will bless you. I want to give you blessings. But I'm going to give you blessings through your work. And let's put it this way. There's, there's a great figure they have here on the page. They have here, um, this is a, uh, a water wheel. So think of the water as God's blessing. Think of the cup as your work. Okay? Now, if you get caught up in the cup, you can build giant cups, but if the water isn't there, the water isn't there, and you haven't gotten anything. Conversely, if you rely on the water and you don't build yourself a cup, that water isn't going to do anything for you. It's going to spill everywhere. So in life, we need to have both. So let's take this practically into our lives. Let's say we're going to work. We have to remember that the work is the vessel. The work that we're doing is like the vessel in this example. The money that we get is God's blessing. So what does it mean making too many vessels? You know, that means, for example, working on times when God doesn't want you to work. Let's say you're working on Shabbat. Uh, you're making vessels that are not going to capture blessing. Now, you might say, well, I made money on Shabbat. Well, this is where obviously faith will come and we'll say, yes, you made money, but maybe you'll have extra bills that you wouldn't have had if you didn't work on Shabbat. With somebody, as the old saying goes, to the believer, there are no questions. To the non-believer, there are no answers. <laughs> so if you believe in this concept, that our work is just a vessel. It changes how you view your work. It also means that you're not stuck in anything that you're doing. Let's say your, um, you know, your boss says, you know, either you, you know, you work on Shabbos or I'm going to fire you. You're not worried because that just means you're going to lose this vessel. The water is still there. You'll get another vessel. There's countless stories. You know, in Jewish uh, tradition, we have countless stories of this, of Jews who were fired for working on Shabbat and how they, how they got the money back or things like that. Uh, or let's say working in non-kosher areas, as we call it, right? Doing uh, non-kosher business deals. Now, those are vessels that are not going to hold any blessing. You may make some money, but they're not going to hold any blessing. And um, so... If we were to focus entirely on the vessels in life, it also creates a very stressful life. So here you're seeing where faith actually creates a better life. 
bitachon, faith creates a better life. If you believe that the blessing is coming from God, then you're not as stressed. Assuming, assuming you do your work, you need to create a vessel, but you recognize that you are just creating a vessel. So in other words, let me add one more point to this. The outcome is never in your hands. The outcome is determined by God. As God says, I'm going to give that outcome uh, when you create that vessel. You can lose the blessing, but the outcome is determined by God. And uh, some people are going to be blessed with more money. Some people are going to be blessed with less money. And that's just the way it is. I mean, you find two people, you know, go in this kind of the same path and one really makes it, one doesn't. That's just, uh, that's just how it is. So Bitachon tells me like this. In my life, the most important thing is to make me worthy of God's blessing. So let's take health, for example. If I don't have faith in God, I am going to spend all my time fretting about the best doctor. Uh, Judaism says finding the best doctor is creating the vessel. But don't neglect your spiritual duties. Don't neglect your studies. Don't neglect your prayer. Don't neglect your charity. When things are going wrong, that can only make it worse. Of course, God is merciful, and maybe he'll give us a blessing anyways. But the spirituality is also part of the blessing. The spiritual work we do. It's not just the physical. The spiritual is also a blessing as well. Um, and so that's an important part of this whole equation. The spirituality is a big part. So when we, uh, so when someone's sick, we're going to send them both to the best doctor and you're going to send the rabbi a mishabera. You say you want a mishabera. You're going to want to say the prayers for that person because that is the best way and the best avenue towards getting the blessing that you want. So let's take a look at this a lengthy text on page uh, 209, text number 13. Uh, this is uh, from one of the great ethical books, the Chovat HaLavavot, one of the most famous Jewish uh, books of ethics. The Chovat HaLavavot, highly, it's called Duties of the Heart. It's highly suggested anybody to read it. Uh, it talks about faith and trust in God, called Duties of the Heart. Um, an 11th century scholar who lived in Muslim Spain, called Duties of the Heart. You can find many translations of it online. So he writes like this. Bitachon, trust in God, in all of a person's affairs, brings great advantages both religiously and materially. Bitachon engenders absolute loyalty to one's creator, for one who does not rely on God is by necessity relying on something other than God. If you don't rely on God, you're relying on something else. The person who trusts in Almighty is freed of their subservience to other people. This person will cease to pursue others, wait on them, flatter them, and bow to them other than in service of God. They will not fear animosity of others or be taken aback by their opposition and will be unburdened of the debts incurred by their favors. They will be free to rebuke the guilty without fear or shame and need not participate in the conspiracies of their falsehood. So again, he's just showing you how this can lead you to such a peaceful life. And that's why this is such a great book. Uh, really, Duties of the Heart, great book. The Rebbe would tell many people to read this book. Um, another advantage for the person who trusts in God I believe Ahava is very big into the book um, if they are blessed with wealth they will gladly and generously expedite their financial contributions towards heaven and toward their fellows it's another great example um, a lot of people have trouble giving the tithe giving a tenth of their, of their earnings to charity they think it diminishes from what they have but if you recognize 
that that's part of your vessel, it's part of your blessing, then if you don't give it, then that's being stupid. That's like not going to work. That's like, um, you know, it's not, you're, you're, you're diminishing your vessel. So you give, you get. And if they have no riches, they will see in their lack of wealth a kindness from the Almighty in absolving them of the many obligations towards God and society and entitled and entails from the hassle of guarding and managing it. So here, person has faith. If he doesn't have a lot of money, he's happy. Great. As the statement goes in Perky Avot, Marba Nachasim Marba Daiga. You have more property, you have more worries, more insurance, more umbrella policies, more, more things that break. Life is simple, right? You have no car, nothing breaks down. Thus, the one who trusts in God enjoys the benefit of money, which is sustenance, but is free of worries that the ownership of wealth brings. Their money will not prevent them from trusting in God as they do not rely on it, but rather see it as a deposit to be used for certain purposes for a certain limited time. If the money stays with them, it will not make them defiant, nor will they demand gratitude from those with whom they are obligated to share it. But thank the Almighty for using them as a source of charity. So it's saying charity. So you give the charity, the person's not thankful. Big deal. Wasn't ever your money anyways. And if the money is lost, they will not be paid by the loss, but will thank the Almighty for taking the deposit off their hands and relieving them of the responsibility. Can you imagine? You lose a lot of money and um, you're like happy. I saw today there's actually a, a podcast. There's a Jewish podcast about money. There was one rabbi talking about how he made and lost $7 million. It's very interesting. Uh, they also they managed to get Dave Ramsey on there talking uh, mystical stuff. Anyways. So what... All of this, though, only applies if you believe in a creator, God, okay? That's, that's really the idea. Philosophy leads to how we lead our lives. Uh, philosophy leads to uh, what, you know, how we live our lives. Um, so all this is really, really um, important in the way we live our lives. And all this will lead to the final step of the class. So just one second here. Um, but again, I think what you're getting from this, I think if anybody's reading this text over here, really, I think it's beautiful. It's a beautiful text. And uh, again, this is just to give you a taste of Jewish ethics. So earlier on, we were having Jewish philosophy, which may have been more confusing, right? Did God create the world or was it always around? Da, 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 da. It gets a little more complicated than this. This is like, wow, this is beautiful. This is, this is nice, right? So for some people, this talks a lot more, Jewish ethics. Um, but now I want to end off with the last part, which is how the two of these things tie together. And that is the topic of anger. But let me, uh, let me go back here. Let me just share this over here. Sorry. I'm dealing with all the screens over here. Um, all right. So let me just share on the screen. I'm sorry. One day, one day we'll get this right. Trying our best. All right. So you have over here, this was the second section, which was faith and be tough on trust in God. Everything in our life has a uh, divinely ordained purpose. The journey of our life guides us towards that goal. The self-reliant purpose believes their success and failures are due to their own efforts. The fatalist is carefree and sees fate is entirely out of their hands. But both lifestyles are equally distant from be tough on. Well, I guess if you translate fatalist like that, be tough on. This is the triangle that they have over here. We view it as like a vessel. While the water wheel is a channel through which the water is transported, both the motor and well are needed for it to work properly. It is not a working entity on its own. Uh, when one focuses on the vessel, not on the resource itself, God, 
then the delivery system will be incompatible with the source. Bitachon directs us on how to become a worthy divine blessing. When it comes to character development, okay, that's the next slide. Let me uh, let me get back to here. All right, so let me end off here for talking about anger. Um, most characters. So again, we spoke about creation. We spoke about faith or trust. Now let's talk about anger for a moment, which is character. Anybody here thinks anger is a good thing? Think so. You don't think so? No. Why not? Right? Okay. <laughs> um, so we do things irrational. We do things irrational when we're angry. So Maimonides writes like this. He says that you can see in text number ten. Uh, text number 14 he says that most character traits you take the middle road the middle road for most thing is good right don't be extreme in any area extremists are never good he says but certain things are so bad you want to leave them off to the side except for extreme situations and uh, one of those is anger and we've discussed this concept many times and we've said that one who gets angry it's as if they worshipped idols. It's as if they worshipped idols. And today we can understand why. We started, we discussed how God created the world. We discussed how we have to have faith and trust in this system that God created. God created us with a purpose. And there's what we have to do. The final outcome is out of our hands. And all that ties into anger. If we have the belief as God as the creator, if we have the trust in God, that we do our part and God gives us and the rest is up to God, then there's never a reason to be angry. Why are we angry? We're angry because the guy cut me off in traffic and now I am slower to get to my destination. They put us where? On hold. On hold. Oh yeah, a good example, right? So today I... Um, I had to, uh, was, you know, hang on hold with Delta for like a half an hour till they got on the phone and I was trying to check in for my flight. I'm taking a bunch of teens to New York and uh, I couldn't check in. So I called them up. They say, oh, well, nobody's birth dates and genders are in the reservation. I'm like, okay, um, which is weird. So now that I had to spend another half an hour telling them all the genders and all the birthdays. So you get very frustrated. Like, what do you mean? I, right. You ever hear like, Customer service is very difficult, right? You can, what do you mean? I took a, you know, I, 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 you know, I spent the time and I entered all the information online and you messed up and you better reimburse me and this, yada, 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 right? People get very angry uh, in that situation. You know, very often I'll hear it. Um, whereas the believing in the faith person says like this, I don't, you don't know why, you know, I did my part. I, I entered all the information online for whatever reason didn't catch and God wanted me to waste an hour on hold. What am I supposed to do? Well, what you know? It's like earlier when we read in that book, in the book of ethics, whether you have money or you don't, you're happy. Right? You have money, you don't, you're happy. So now it's now it's beeping in there. So Delta Airlines messed up. What are you gonna do? You you did your part. Um, so if somebody messes you over, maybe they're a competitor in business, maybe they're uh maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's um, I don't know, it's all different areas of our life where customer in the store, customer in the store right? Uh, uh, you know, uh, maybe the politicians are messing everything up, right? We would love to blame the politicians. 
when we have the mindset described above that God's creation is purposeful and that everything that's happening to me right now is part of that purpose. And if I believe in God's goodness, that's the key thing. If I believe in God's goodness, then everything that's happening to me, happening to me right now is good. If I walk around sulking, that means I have a lack of faith in God. That means I believe that someone else is in charge. There's, I'm not, we go, we're going back to the belief of self-reliance, not maybe relying on me, relying on the other person. Yes. How do you deal with situations? Like how would you, like, how would you feel comfortable saying that to someone that was raped? That's an extreme example. Um, well, obviously you go with rape, not murder, because then if you're murdered, you're dead. But um, there's, uh, well, I'll tell you. It's actually a very good question, and I'll tell you why. I was speaking with somebody the other day, um, because I know someone who has a relative of theirs that passed away. And I said, what I find uh, prevents people from healing from difficult situations. The biggest impediment of people healing from trauma are the what ifs. There's a difference between forgiving the perpetrator. The perpetrator did a wrong thing. They made a bad choice and they have to be punished for it. Okay. We're not saying they don't get punished for their bad choice, but a lot of times people get caught up in the what ifs, right? Let's say a parent that unfortunately their child got molested. Okay. I have a, a classmate who was, uh, you know, his babysitter for years and years when he was younger. Uh, I'm sure his parents are thinking, what if to themselves? What if I, you know, had never hired that babysitter, right? The what ifs are not, you know, you, you can you can think about them all day, but they're not they're not usually helpful for healing. There's really no good answer. It's a ter it's a terrible situation. But when you're caught up in the what ifs, not the what ifs, but like what you were pointing at was that, that it's all part of God's plan. So how would a child being molested be a part of God's plan? Oh well, we don't know. I mean, how is, how, how is anything yeah, anything that's bad? Yeah. yeah, anything that's bad in life, we don't always understand. We don't always understand, but what we do is we, we do, do the best with the situation we're in. So like my classmate is now spending time and he, well, actually he's a great younger than me. He's, he does a lot of, uh, you know, he's a practicing rabbi, but he, he spends a lot of time helping other victims. Uh, so he's turned it into a cause and a purpose. Mm -hmm. I don't think he would ever wish it upon himself. Right. So again, if someone, so all this is to say someone messes you over, they made a bad choice, but then what happened to you, um, was meant to happen to you anyways um but anger will prevent you from healing that's my point so the guy messed what are you going to do about it now you're just going to be we love to project our issues in other people that's that anger does not help us move forward right when we have anger against another person it doesn't help us move forward some people walk around angry all day it doesn't help them live their purpose of life um, anybody here ever been angry at somebody else before? I, I have, right? We get angry at people. It happens. Uh, but anger, as uh, Shaul started off saying, right? You said when you're angry, it doesn't help you get anywhere, right? You uh, make bad decisions. Um, so all this is to say is that when we put together philosophy, which is that God created the world, we put together Jewish ethics to believe that we do our part, but the rest is up to God, then all this leads to a character, how we deal with anger. So all this was to show you today that by having Jewish philosophy and having Jewish ethics can all help us deal with our character traits.
and help us deal with all the things that go on in our lives. And that's why the, the study of these things are so important, because this is another area where as we start off the class, we said Judaism is a holistic study. It helps you throughout your entire life. And so when you study Jewish philosophy and Jewish ethics, they can also help you in your day-to-day -day life. And that's really what's important. Judaism uh, is a guide to your life in every area of your life. And if you want to be able to elevate your life, make your life better, live a more wholesome life, studying Jewish philosophy and to a great extent Jewish ethics are a great way to elevate your life. And that's really what I wanted to present to you today is there are so many books out there, some of Jewish philosophy, some of Jewish ethics. If you feel you need one of those two, and by the way, some are a fusion of the two like Tanya. Um, if you feel that you need it, you're, you're struggling in life, know that Judaism has this whole section of study called Jewish philosophy and Jewish ethics, and uh, they will help elevate your life, maybe deal with emotions of anger, deal with emotions of the what ifs, and uh, deal with emotions that go on at work. Um, all of these are ways that will enhance and elevate your life. And so I hope that you will uh, research and look for books of Jewish ethics if you, if you need a Jewish philosophy, if you're having questions of faith as well, uh, all these can be very helpful to you in your life. And uh, we're going to end off with um, a final line because we always like to end off on something positive. Um, on page two, 226. 226. Just a beautiful ethical line. Um, Let me see if I could find it over here on the screen, because I always like to end up on a good on a good note. If you want to know, if you have a question in life, what to do, you want to know what action should you take. Um, so here it is. Move along over here. Oh, there's a lot of stuff over here. I skip a lot. I'm sorry, but you see how much longer we would be. So it's uh, it's called um, what is the straight path? Let's see. It's 2.21, sorry. Oh, let, me, let me skip the next one. All right. What is the straight path that a person should choose for themselves? That which is harmonious for the one who does it and harmonious for mankind. When you have a question in life, what action you should take, um, always do that, which is going to be good, peaceful, and good. And uh, in our anger, a lot of times we make the wrong choice. But the straight path in life, is to do what makes harmony, what makes in, 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 Jew, in Hebrew called shalom, peace. We want to always focus on doing actions in our life that brings peace to us, brings peace to others. And if you're finding trouble, finding peace in yourself, study Jewish philosophy, Jewish ethics, and uh, hopefully we will find the peace. And as we say, he who makes peace in heaven, may he make peace for us here on this earth. And let us say amen. Thank you all for coming. We're going to stop the recording.